Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect the ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and today's guest is Dr. Nicholas Burt. Nick takes us inside the intriguing world of hyperbaric medicine. Essentially born for the treatment of divers' decompression sickness, today it goes way beyond diving to treating diabetes, wounds, and other ailments. Nick looks at life through a thoughtful lens which was nurtured by his career, including med school at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, being a major in the United States Air Force during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and deputy commander of Hyperbaric and Wound Care Center at Travis AFB. Nick was also CEO and chief medical officer of the Divers Alert Network. For more information, please check out futurefrogman.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogman. Let's get into it. So, Nick, welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I, I really am honored by the invitation. Well, we're honored to have you. Uh, we, you and I met, at least briefly, in 2012, eight years ago, at Danbury Hospital's Dive Medicine Conference that was hosted by our friend David Charash. And uh, I believe at that time, you were the CEO and chief medical officer of the Divers Alert Network. You've done an awful lot since then, uh, as well as before then, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to catch up with you and learn more about your very interesting and uh, jam-packed career. Uh, I'd first like to challenge our listeners to guess where you are right now. And here's a hint. It's already tomorrow there where Nick is. It's 1 p.m. Eastern in the U.S., and Nick is 16 hours ahead of us. It's 5 a.m., and he's very kind to be with us today at this early hour for him. Thanks for the extraordinary effort, Nick. And please tell us, where are you? Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, I have the great pleasure of being in the Marshall Islands, which for those of you who are wondering where that small body of uh, land is, it's about halfway between the Hawaiian Islands and Australia, about eight degrees north of the equator. I have to admit, I, I had to look it up, Nick, I'm embarrassed to say, and uh, I, I've done a little studying, a very interesting part of the world. And what brought you there? Well, I was at a kind of job-changing period of my life, and a colleague of mine from the hyperbaric world thought of me and talked to me about this opportunity, which required somebody who was, had a primary medical background, which I do, and also a hyperbaric medicine background and said, hey, uh, they need US trained docs out there. And I thought of you, and so I looked into it and thought to myself, when am I gonna get a chance to do what sort of every diving doc has a fantasy of doing, which is to live in a, a beautiful tropical area, get a chance to go diving all the time, and also practice medicine and support the population of a small island. So it's kind of a dream come true. It sounds like a dream. So am I correct, you're the chief medical officer of International SOS? So I work for International SOS, but I am not International SOS's chief medical officer. I am the chief medical officer of the hospital on Kwajalein Island. Okay, very good. Thank you for clarifying that. And what is uh, Kwajalein like? So Kwajalein is a small horseshoe-shaped island that's probably, if you did the entire circumference all the way around is about six miles. Um, a big side of it is the landing strip. And this is the site of Operation Flintlock in the 1940s as part of the US's march towards Japan. And it was a, one of the early and very important battles that happened here. And as a result of that battle, uh, Kwajalein and the Marshall Islands and the United States have maintained a relationship 
and uh, subsequently the U.S. sort of now leases this island back from the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and we support, as I'm, my role is to have the medical support of a military mission here. There's an army garrison on the island that supports um, the Reagan missile defense system and space fence. So there's a lot of radar installations and other uh, sort of strategic military accoutrements that way that are on the island. Uh, I have nothing to do with my world on a day-to-day -day basis other than I'm here to help support that mission. So you're focused on servicing the medical needs of the military population there? The military and civilian population. There are approximately, right now, about uh, twelve to 1,500 people on the island, uh, a mixture of small group of military members. Most are contractors that work for the various industries that support the island. Okay. And uh, I understand there are 29 coral atolls in the Marshall Islands. Uh, your work is... Uh, focus specifically on that particular island, or do you deal with other islands as well? Uh, thank you for asking. Yes, uh, my zone of influence is also on uh, Roy Namur, which used to be two islands, but then they were merged. So one of the interesting aspects about some of the battles here was people carved out some of the earth from the coral reefs and created larger islands as a result of that. So Roy and Namur were created into one, but there's a small clinic up on Roy that uh, I also help to oversee. Okay. And that's just a little north of where Kwajalein is. Right. And you were explaining to me, you also have a relationship with the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society. Is that correct? That is correct. And what's, what's the story there? So I have been on the board of the Royal, of the, uh, undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society since about 2014 uh, and subsequently became uh, one of their presidents. So there are right now are three presidents or three presidential phases, uh, each two years in length. And uh, first is president-elect for two years, then president, and then past president. And I'm currently a past president and completing my, uh, I guess I'm in my first of the, the, my last two years on the board in that role. And that uh, is the UHMS is the leading uh, hyperbaric medicine, diving medicine, scientific support organization that uh, in the world. And it's an international organization that uh, tries to pull together the best minds and the, the leading scientific uh, people across the world in that area of uh, medical endeavor. So I think that's a, a good segue into talking about hyperbaric medicine and then uh, I'd like to talk about your career because you've done a, a lot of different things in the medical arena, but it, it seems that you have a particular area of interest and expertise with hyperbaric medicine. Um, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, what hyperbaric medicine is? Uh, explain that to us because I, I, I doubt many of us really know. Thank you. Uh, yes, you know, most divers have some semblance of an idea about what hyperbaric medicine is. They think of putting people into recompression chambers and that's about where it 
kind of ends um, if they get decompression sickness. Uh, so hyperbaric medicine is hyper is above normal, baric is pressure. And so if you put somebody in a pressurized vessel for therapeutic purposes under greater than one atmosphere of pressure, you're technically engaged in a hyperbaric environment. Uh, the hyperbaric oxygen therapy is the breathing of 100% oxygen while under pressure. And that process greatly enhances oxygen delivery to tissues that otherwise don't have an adequate supply. So we have used this in multiple areas of medicine. The initial areas where hyperbaric medicine was created were, were for injured divers or people who were suffering from caissons disease. So that is the same thing as decompression sickness, but in an air environment where people are in pressurized vessels uh, putting in bridge foundations uh, in in the water environment. So if that it's a hard way to to put your mind around it, if you're going to be digging a hole into the earth underwater, you have to pressurize that area so that you push the water out so that you can continue to dig. And these people would be under that kind of pressure for many hours in a day, working really hard under pressure, and then come quickly back up to the surface. That is the same thing as breathing scuba underwater at pressure for a prolonged period of time, and they wound up having profound decompression sickness and awful fatality statistics. And that is where the field began, really, and it evolved subsequently into the 70s and 80s into more of a clinical application. Interestingly enough, the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, was very uh, big into the clinical applications of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Most people would consider the, the Navy sort of that area, but it turned out to be the Air Force. And uh, my initial introduction really to the field was when I was an Air Force flight surgeon and I got a chance to work as a hyperbaric physician. And I liked it so much and was so inspired by it that I continued to do training at the University of California, San Diego. So in, the, in that field, um, we now treat a multitude of issues. So from decompression sickness, we're in an environment where we're enhancing oxygen delivery to tissues that may have an interrupted supply due to bubbles and the inflammation that stems from those bubbles. Uh, and also the hyperbaric oxygen therapy will reduce inflammation that is caused by those bubbles, which is pretty profound, as well as finding a safe way of removing the inert gas bubbles like nitrogen or helium. For the other applications, principally wound care, you have areas that have an inherent lack of oxygen supply due to vascular disease. The principal driver for that is, is diabetes, and diabetes causes the destruction of small blood vessels to tissues. So you have uh, areas of poor perfusion or poor blood supply, and that enables wounds to spontaneously generate. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is kind of an incredible miracle in that it enables new blood vessels to grow and people are able to achieve spontaneous and lasting healing as a result. So you just talked about diabetes um, and you, you mentioned wound care. So I guess what you were just explaining is this can be used to some extent with certain types of wounds as well. That's correct. So the, the diabetic population and the other population that is, is are the one of the principal uh, 
patient groups that derive benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. One of the other main ones are people who have had radiation therapy for cancer. And radiation causes a, a similar sort of pathology to diabetes, but in the focal area that was irradiated. So over time, it also causes destruction of blood vessels in an area. And the longer someone goes post-radiation therapy, the greater the risk ultimately of them developing an area that is poorly perfused and is open to spontaneous breakdown. And people can see this both externally from the skin, but more commonly internally from internal organs. And one of the common areas, say, is for men with prostate cancer, they can have spontaneous breakdown of their bladder. And they can have bleeding from the bladder, they can have blood clots, they can have urinary obstruction. And these are men that are awfully miserable. Uh, you can also have, uh, we've had a lot of female patients who have had uterine or cervical cancer and have had similar issues uh, in their bodies. The, the colon can also be targeted and impacted and people can have miserable uh, radiation proctitis and rectal bleeding and, and the rest. And it's really wonderful that after you know 30 to 40 treatments, you can see someone go from bleeding and dealing with all the complications and pain from that to having tissues that are now back to being healthy and they don't require subsequent treatment and they're stable. Yeah, that's fascinating. So your work, um, what would you say roughly percentage-wise you deal with diving versus um, other forms of ailments like you were just describing? I, I would, across the industry, uh, Injuries from associated with divers are a very low percentage of what hyperbaric physicians deal with. And in large part, that is because we have made diving an extremely safe activity from a decompression illness perspective, uh, which, is, which is good news. Uh, in truth, nobody is making a living on uh, treating injured divers. Uh, and, that's, and that's really quite a profound statement when you, when you think about it. I think divers who hear about decompression illness we spend a lot of time at conferences talking about those issues, but the, the reality within at least uh, the developed world with recreational and even commercial diving and military diving is that decompression illness, uh, whether that is arterial gas embolism or decompression sickness is fortunately very uncommon. It does happen. Uh, and there's also uh, medical or iatrogenic causes of arterial gas embolism that can be caused by various procedures. And those are also very rare um, and, but are amenable to hyperbaric therapy. But fortunately, that would be about one to 2% of the practices of people who are open to treating divers are seeing divers. So even at a place like San Diego, we might see somebody with possible decompression sickness, maybe once a month, uh, if, and that's, uh, that's just, not that common, which is, which is lovely, uh, but it does take years to develop uh, in those sorts of settings, really a repertoire of experience. Some people who treat uh, around the world, especially harvesting diving populations, those are a very different kettle of fish, and those individuals unfortunately suffer from a much higher incidence of decompression sickness and much more severe disease because of the stresses of their profession. So these are guys that are diving so far off their recreational diving tables that uh, it's actually amazing that they don't all have severe decompression sickness more than uh, you'd, you'd expect. But uh, 
the people who are treating those and have that experience have an absolutely unique set of uh, experiences with treating that population. That's far more than most of us see in treating your average recreational diver. Sure. Did you say harvesting? Harvesting divers. Yes, sir. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? So harvesting divers are those that uh, are principally in developing countries who are going down to gather oftentimes lobster or conch, and uh, they suffer tremendous risks for what they go through. Frequently, they have gear in horrible repair, um, and these guys are out there oftentimes diving in the, off these little tiny skiffs. They'll have about six tanks in a morning, and they'll just burn through tanks one after the other, running around the bottom. Uh, either Most of these guys are not surface supplied. They're on scuba, and they're running around the bottom looking for animals. And uh, because they have been out there for years, they're having to go deeper and deeper to try to find these animals. And so they'll go down, they'll burn a tank, they'll come up, get a new one, and go right back down again. So they're bounce diving, they're diving at deep depths, and they're burning their tank down to zero. They're not doing decompression stops or anything else. And, and then they'll break for lunch and then go right back and do another six dives. Yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I saw a great, uh, story about that. I think it might've been on 60 minutes a year or two ago, um, where they were under pressure, either self-imposed, I don't mean to use the word pressure, but pressure from an employer or a boss or, or self-imposed in order to make a living. But, uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how the, uh, hyperbaric and, uh, decompression sickness has, has, uh, uh, become uh, fortunately less of a concern with with divers. Um, and, and would it be fair to say that diving, uh, as you mentioned, uh, like the construction workers on bridges, that's that's when there started to be a discovery of there was a problem here, and then over time uh, the science evolved and. Uh, the treatments evolved as well as uh, education to uh, to divers so they could avoid this by by following better procedures. I think that's a very you nice know, summary. Yeah. In other words, it, it was what you're using now for things like uh, wounds and cancer care and diabetes uh, uh, was born out of out of diving. It was indeed. Yeah. And so for those of us who have that sort of connection, it's uh it's a pretty magical lineage. Yeah, and it's and it's yeah, it's it's great that uh, that that it can be applied uh, elsewhere and in such a great way. And and it's fascinating work that you do. So we've we've heard about the benefits. Are there in today's world? You've gotten very sophisticated. Are there any risks associated with it? You know, quite frankly, the biggest risk that people have with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, and this may sound tongue-in-cheek, is boredom. But uh, and, that, and that's and that's no kidding. Some people really, if they're going to be doing say twenty to thirty to forty treatments, and these are usually about two hours at a time, uh, five days a week is a common treatment pattern for chronic issues, not for acute diving treatments. Uh, we don't do that many treatments for divers, but. Uh, boredom is really probably one of the, the biggest issues that people face. And a lot of chambers are set up with 
TVs or you can watch movies to help sort of pass the time. Some people love that because it's a quiet time. No one's bugging them. The phone isn't ringing. Uh, their emails aren't pinging at them, and they're just able to just focus on, on just being in a quiet place. But uh, from a potential injury perspective, uh, the biggest risk is middle ear barotrauma, just as divers have. So uh, people can have issues or challenges with equalization on while the chamber is pressurizing. And this most commonly is in the person who is either not a diver or hasn't ever really performed a Valsalva consciously or other equalization techniques. Usually once that learning curve occurs, it's, it's an injury-free environment. In a very small number of adults, uh, we'll, we'll get uh, tubes put into the ears to help facilitate that. Tube placement would also be something that would be more standard practice when we deal with a pediatric population uh, to uh, help ensure that they can equalize. But those are the two main ones. Um, and then you know we think about or are concerned about pulmonary barotrauma issues, but uh, in people with underlying lung disease, but we really have not seen that very much at all in the field. And in large part, that is because our ascent rates are so slow. We really depressurize a chamber extremely slowly. And relative to diving where you have a sort of recommended ascent rate of you know, 30 feet a minute, we're doing something uh, at a much, much slower pace. So frequently from about 40 or 45 feet of seawater, we're taking 10 to 15 minutes to ascend, which for a diver would be agonizingly slow, um, but it really mitigates the risk that people have with respect to that. Um, the other potential issue is, uh, and this is extremely rare, uh, but it's a possibility, is... Uh, oxygen toxicity seizures. So for all of us who are using nitrox and have heard about oxygen toxicity or oxtox, um, that's what we're talking about, which is a, the acute neurological stimulation uh, that, is, that can produce oxygen seizures. It's an interesting sort of parallel for those of you for a moment who are interested in sort of technical diving or nitrox diving. I'll just go down that road for a moment. Uh, we have a safe number with nitrox, which is 1.4 atmospheres absolute exposure. And that is the equivalent of breathing 1.4 or 100% oxygen at 1.4 atmospheres. In a hyperbaric environment, we're treating people on 100% oxygen at 2 to 2.4 atmospheres. And you may go, well, why is that okay or safe when I have to do it at such a lower pressure as a scuba diver? And in large part, that is because no one is going to die of a seizure in a chamber, but you can die of a seizure while you're in the water. So we want to really elevate the level of safety. The other is that CO2 levels, which will increase when people are actively moving around as a scuba diver, are not what's going on when people are seated comfortably in a hyperbaric chamber. So we have sort of lower risk factor from that standpoint as well. And in that environment, we really see... Uh, oxygen seizures at an extremely small published rate at about one to three per 10,000 exposures. So that's, uh, those are the, the main risks. And I guess fire is another potential risk because you're in an enriched oxygen environment. And in a multi-place environment, we work really hard to maintain oxygen within the chamber uh, at a low rate uh, or low percentage. Uh, the, those chambers are pressurized with air 
the only 100% oxygen environment is from a face mask or face hood or head hood. Um, the uh, difference is also that in monoplace chambers that are pressurized with 100% oxygen, a therefore a much higher a fire risk. And we, as a result, ensure that everybody who goes into those environments is sort of stripped down. So oftentimes they are sort of in their birthday suit under a hospital gown or a pair of scrubs. So there's nothing from the outside world. Oftentimes in monoplace chambers, patients will have a grounding pad placed on them to ensure that no static electricity is able to create a spark. Well, that's interesting. You and you, you just <laughs> did articulate a number of uh, risks, but uh, uh, which which is really uh, interesting because there have to be, there have to be you know risks and benefits, and uh, but it sounds like the benefits far far outweigh the risks, particularly in a in a well controlled uh, environment. So thanks for reviewing that. You're welcome. Now I wanted to tell you a couple of stories or share a couple of stories and get some comments. Um, we, I'm glad you talked about technical diving at least briefly. We recently had a, uh, a great podcast with Richie Kohler, who was one of the main characters in Shadow Divers, and uh, Richie was awesome. And uh, uh, then the following week, I had uh, a guest, uh, Clay Wilcox, a friend of mine who was on Calypso with Cousteau uh, years, a few years after me. So unfortunately, our paths never crossed, but. Clay was telling me, you know, Richard, I, I, he was telling me he went 230, 230 feet deep on air, uh, as did I on the USS Monitor uh, with Cousteau. Um, we were, as I said, we're, we're not on the ship at the same time, so we weren't on the same dives together. But uh, he says, no, people always say, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. You didn't do 230 on air. And, and the people say the same thing to me. And I say, yeah, we did. And... Uh, and and crazy. And then the uh, reason I mentioned Richie is, you know, he, he talked a lot about technical diving, which was very interesting. And and he's like, you know, you can go 210, maybe 220 on air, but uh, that's a limit. And then he was talking about the benefits of technical diving and mixed gases. Uh, but uh, Clay and I were kind of laughing like, you know, we, we did it. It was it was the early days in the uh, in the 70s and uh, 80s, early 80s. But uh Anyway, what's your reaction to going 230 on air? Well, yes, you know, I think uh, the shadow divers that are talk about that experience of being at those sorts of depths on air uh, beautifully. Uh, I can't imagine getting down there on air. Um, I haven't been that deep. And uh, boy, that has got to be a, well, especially knowing you know, the, the more you know, the more you would have a reason to be afraid of doing something like that. Uh, but I have to imagine that you guys weren't ignorant. You guys were expert divers and doing this on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're probably going, wow, we're all compromised down here. We're all not thinking clearly. And we're asked to go penetrate a wreck or deal with uh, that kind of environment, which has had to really raise the stakes. I... I um, you know, I, I still have that sort of feeling that I can generate reading through shadow divers and the penetration of that sub uh, on air going, oh, my God, what a what a terrifying experience. So uh, you're actually your your personal environment, our involvement with that uh, has got to be um, 
provide you with some amazing memories that nobody else has experienced. Yeah, I think so. Um, we were pushing the envelope and uh, of course, uh, I was a good diver, but uh, I was with outstanding divers uh, who had been diving for decades. And so we, we did premeditate that we, we were going to have potentially some issues. We would definitely be narked. Uh, we were in a two and a half to three knot current in the Gulf Stream. And then, of course, Clay had uh, a, a different experience or experiences. But uh, and then Richie, you know, was talking about the benefits of mixed gases and the ability to go deeper, longer with uh, with uh, mixed gases versus air. So um, let's circle back to uh, I, I wanted to ask you with the medical applications. Is this a one person chamber or a two person chamber? What, what what's the setup there? Typically yeah, on, on, on Kwajalein, you mean? Well, I, yeah. And, and maybe elsewhere as well. What, what, what's typically used? What's, what's the setup? Like on Calypso, we had a two man chamber, for example. So, uh, the predominant chamber around the world is what's called a monoplace chamber. And I alluded to this earlier. It is a single person treatment. And most people have seen pictures of this, uh, most notoriously the one with Michael Jackson sitting in a, in an acrylic tube, but that is a monoplace chamber. They're pressurized with usually 100% oxygen, and uh, that enables you know a certain degree of efficiency. And from a business startup perspective, the per chamber cost can make things a little bit more affordable if you're getting off the ground or you just want to have a couple of people that you're treating at a time. A smaller number of chambers across the country and the world are what's called multi-place chambers. And these are the bigger steel chambers that allow for more than one patient. Hence the name. And those are pressurized with oxygen, oh, with air. And uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of environment. Uh, my training and experience has really been predominantly in the multi-place environment. So I have kind of a, a tender spot for that treatment modality. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about it is that you're allowed, you can have staff in the chamber with patients. And you can also have patients in there with each other. And from a treatment perspective, going back to our my example of radiation cystitis, which is bladder bleeding uh, from radiation therapy, when you have people who have been alone and suffering from this and suddenly have other people who come in with the same issue, there is a beautiful solidarity that forms. And there is a therapeutic benefit from just having other people in that environment with you that are suffering from similar issues. And those individuals get a lot of benefit from that kind of socialization and support. So it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful organic other layer of uh, sort of the therapeutic milieu that I really love watching happen spontaneously. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. that that's very, I was going to ask you about other people like staff or doctors getting in, but uh, that's that's very cool. I wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, but speaking of that, uh, are there instances where you have gone into chambers with patients or colleagues? I'm sure colleagues have. That. What about yourself? Yes. Uh, so my my initial training was at Travis Air Force Base, and they have an enormous chamber, an 18-person multi-place chamber connected to two five-person multi-place chambers. Um, and I started out as an inside attendant uh, working 
within the chamber taking care of patients and then gradually spent more time outside the chamber watching others and supervising treatments. But uh, yes, I have gone in uh, to the chamber many times and I've also really enjoyed in that multi-place environment, say with a diver who's got some neurological uh, effects from their injury, watching during air breaks. So these patients will be on 100% oxygen for periods of time under pressure and to minimize the risks associated with oxygen toxicity, we'll give them air breaks. So at, at the standard treatment depth for a tra treatment table six, we'll go down to the equivalent of 60 feet of seawater or 2.8 atmospheres absolute. And that's a, that's a pretty high oxygen dose. So to minimize those risks, we'll give them five minute air breaks. And during that time, it's a perfect time for allowing someone to just scratch their face, have something to drink, uh, but also do a quick neurological assessment. And those breaks can really be instrumental in helping uh, to assess people and the impact of the treatment that we're providing. Just backing up for a moment, from a pure physiological perspective, treatment in a monoplace and a multiplace are equivalent. So there's no one that's better than the other. I would say from a treating a treatment of diver perspective, I find that the multiplace is probably more advantageous just because it allows the staff to perform some of those neurological assessments and, and do periodic assessments that you can't really quite do when someone's lying down in a monoplace treatment. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. I, I assumed that you had been in chambers many times, but I uh, wanted to, wanted to hear it from you. Uh, it's, uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story on Calypso. I mentioned we had a two-man chamber, and it was only used once during my tenure for uh, a chief diver named Bernard Delamotte, who uh, was a great man. And uh, I had been on the dive with him, and I had no symptoms, but he had some pain in his shoulder. We later learned that he had banged his shoulder, and it may have just been due to that, but uh, out of an abundance of caution, he went in. And uh, the doctor on board did not go in with him, even though it was a two-man. But Bernard, uh, great guy, funny guy, and he, he went in with a jug of wine, which I would imagine is not <laughs> protocol, right, Nick? <laughs> uh, but, you know, the French have a way of making a little, little style with it, which is, that's fantastic. Uh, yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that would not uh, be protocol, but I think that's great. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one of one of my one of my uh, favorite memories, I guess, in a way. Did he have um, some brie and you know some good bread or something with him as well? You know, I don't think he took any food in with him oh. that I recall. <laughs> but uh, it was okay. in the, it was late at night, and he was in there much of the night. Um, but uh, anyway, so let's uh, let's circle back to talking about your career, and uh, maybe I could start with a few of the positions, one of which you, you mentioned, and uh, I kind of like to learn how you um, gravitated towards this field. You've, you, you've got, it seems like you've got a really broad um, range of skills in the medical world, uh, not only hands-on medical attention, but you've, uh, you've learned and led a lot of uh, leadership and administrative, uh, you know, work, working out efficiencies in organizations, hospitals, and so forth. But 
looks like you had your, your undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and then you went to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. What was that all about? Uh, well, I really decided that I wanted to study medicine. And when I, my father was also a physician. And when I decided to do that, when I really accepted that that was what I wanted to engage in, I really needed to find my own voice. And I had always wanted to do more of a study abroad. I wanted to see more of the world. And I also felt, and intuitively, and I didn't know how to articulate this any better, that being in a new environment and really facing the fears and apprehensions of being outside a comfort zone, outside of what was familiar, was really an important experience for physicians because their patients are always in that state of mind. Hospitals are foreign, scary places. And I think it's really important that we have a really a deep empathy for what that is like. So for all those reasons, I was like, you know what? I just, this feels like the right thing to do. And I, I feel very fortunate. It was the only school that I applied to and I was accepted. And I spent six pretty remarkable years in Dublin. That's amazing. Yeah, I like that philosophy, too. Uh, that was very insightful for a young man. Uh, and then you had a residency in Washington? Yes. Um, so the North Northwest was uh, sort of a foundation or foundational places for family medicine. And I had spent multiple summers uh, working up in Alaska. My sister was in Southeast Alaska at that time. And I got a chance to work in their clinic or volunteer in their clinic uh, for multiple summers and uh, kind of really enjoyed that rural medicine, but also kind of operational medicine beginnings, which was, uh, you know, what do I have here in this small environment? I don't have everything and I've just got myself. Uh, and what can we do to take care of the people that come in to seek our help? Like, I enjoyed that and uh, sort of came back to the Northwest and was grateful to get accepted into uh, a competitive program. And that was uh, associated with the University of Washington, right? That's correct. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned earlier the U.S. Air Force, where you became a, a flight surgeon during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And that, uh, it sounded to me like that might have been the beginning of your interest in hyperbaric yeah, so uh, I started diving, you know, like so many people of my generation and, and before me, um, was really struck at a deep place by watching the Cousteau Odyssey and going, you know what, There's, there is something about the power of discovering, the power of driving out to the horizon and seeing what the world is made of and looking at it through the lens of what is truly there versus what we think is there or what we're afraid of or anything else. And, you know, the, these, these films and these, I was just watching the, the shark last night, you know, just how do we take the mythology of say of sharks and really look at them for the creatures that they are. And, you know, everybody has kind of followed along that pathway, but somebody had to start it. And that had a deep profound impact on me. And I got to dive uh, fortunately, at, in Catalina, and it's where I learned 
uh, when I was 14 and kind of continued on that road, became an instructor when I was 19 and was, was teaching, never thinking that I would gradually merge these two worlds. Uh, and my time in the Air Force just coincidentally uh, was, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily put together a, a career in aerospace medicine with suddenly circling back into a, becoming a hyperbaric physician and becoming a kind of a specialist in diving medicine. But that's where I got my start. It's always interesting to hear the impact that Cousteau made on people. I had no idea that uh, he made that impact on you, although I guess I could have guessed that. Um, but uh, that, that's pretty cool. Uh, so that launched you uh, after, uh, after the Air Force where you became a major. You, uh, you went to UCSD San Diego um, and studied at a fellowship in diving and hyperbaric medicine. And then you became medical director of hyperbaric medicine at Dixie Regional Medical Center in, in Utah. Yes. So at the time, uh, because I, my background is in family medicine and the department in San Diego is run by emergency medicine, within academic centers, uh, they're, they're very siloed. And so if you can't work in an emergency medicine department as a family medicine physician, there's a lot of overlap there, but that's just the way it is. So I wasn't able to continue working there, even though I loved the group and I, I still have close connections with that. They're my, I refer to them as my San Diego family. Uh, but uh, I really also wanted to, I was inspired by being able to work as kind of a deputy commander for the hyperbaric department when I was at Travis. And the impact that a leadership role enables with respect to affecting change and, and driving processes in a better direction. And I, I wanted to have that opportunity again. And so I took a position at uh, Dixie Regional Medical Center. They had a startup hyperbaric department and uh, was very fortunate to work with uh, some great colleagues in the wound care center and the medical director for wound care, Dr. Carl Van Gills, who's still there, a uh, very robust wound care center right next to the hyperbarics uh, department. and we really developed uh, what became the most, the busiest hyperbaric center within the Intermountain Healthcare system. And they had other hyperbaric centers, but uh, they weren't quite as busy as we were. And we really generated a lot of great, great uh, outcomes for a small community. Yeah, I'm looking at all these chapters in your in your life and your academic career. It's uh, really uh, it, it's it's a long list, but we're going to keep plowing through it because it's okay. uh, it's really a great it's a great story of. Uh, you know, I, and I, I like to share the stories because it, it shows people how uh, other people have uh, pursued and, and grown their career. And sometimes they're well planned. Sometimes, you know, there's an opportunity and somebody says yes um, because they created their luck. You know, they created not that I'm, we're not talking about luck right here, but. You know, you, you make your opportunities. So you, you just were constantly striving, and you went on to USC, Southern Cal, and got your master's in medical management. Yeah. So you're continuing to add to your, your skill set. Um, what, what was your, uh, your objective for doing that? Well, um, sort of very spontaneously, I was sitting at my desk in, in St. George, Utah, and I really loved working there. That was a fantastic opportunity, amazing people, uh, wonderful community. And 
some of the, the best medicine I've ever practiced, I think. Uh, but I suddenly had an opportunity that floated across my desk from the Divers Alert Network, who were suddenly uh, requesting a diving physician to come head their medical services department at the VP level. And I said to my wife, wow, what, what are your thoughts about moving to North Carolina? And she was fortunately, she's fantastic. And she was like, let's do it. And so I put my name in the ring and uh, I was ultimately selected very soon after Dan went through a lot of internal changes and uh, I evolved to the chief medical officer role and then to the CEO of the nonprofit part of Dan, which is overseeing uh, medicine, research, education and development. And those were the departments that I helped to develop and, and grow. And, uh, but I quickly, felt like I was elevated to a level beyond my skill set. So I went back to school. Yeah, that's a, a logical progression. And then, then you uh, were doing consulting for a number of years, I assume. Uh, is it pronounced Isaris Group? Isaris, yes, which is yeah. the genus for the mako shark. Okay. Um, that's where that comes from. Uh, for, for no relationship, not trying to have some sort of parallel with me being a shark or anything else. I just, I love sharks and I think makos are an amazing uh, species and I, I love the word. And that was, that was as far as that goes, uh, if anybody's trying to create any other parallels. But I, um, I wound up very organically getting involved in uh, medical legal work uh, through some friends of mine who were attorneys who uh, asked me to kind of consult on some cases and I found uh, a certain pleasure in the forensic element of looking at medical cases and how patient care had been provided, sometimes well, sometimes not. Um, I have worked both sides of the aisle. And uh, I've declined about a third of the cases that are presented to me because people didn't do anything wrong. But sometimes outcomes occur that you don't anticipate or expect or, or want to have happen. Um, and I think it's a sacred part of our profession to police ourselves and to provide what I hope is thoughtful guidance and thoughtful input on the care that people provide. If my colleagues ended up doing stuff that really they shouldn't, well, it's who better to say, hey, you, gotta, you, you, you didn't do what you're supposed to do than one of their, their colleagues. Um, it, it certainly is a challenge. It's not my, always my favorite role, but I think there's an importance to it. So anyway, that's some work um, that I'm not doing quite as much now where in my current location, but uh, I have been doing sort of on the side. Mm -hmm. Were you doing that uh, out of California or, or back in Raleigh-Durham? Um, mostly in, uh, in Durham, but yeah. uh, that's really where I started was, was when I moved to uh, North Carolina. Well, um, it's really an interesting journey you've had. Um, I'd like to uh, maybe shift gears for a moment, and uh, as we come towards uh, a conclusion, Nick, um, you are on uh, living in a, an area with a number of islands. We talked about 29 coral atolls and over 1,000 islands. And uh, I sent you an article just two, two days ago, uh, David Kaboa, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, 
the president of the Marshall Islands authored an article in The Guardian, which I shared with you, and he said, the Marshall Islands may be the first country to see its land swept away by climate change. He was pleading with the world and the United Nations members to contemplate the action that continued and future inaction will bring um, because uh, the islands there are in jeopardy of being inundated um, and other factors as well, inundated king tides, but uh, I've read uh, the drought and even uh, perhaps uh, an increase in mosquito-borne diseases. I guess you're relatively new living there, but uh, and as we discussed, you're not a climate change scientist, but I wondered what your viewpoint might be now that you're, you're on the ground there, and have you witnessed anything, uh, heard anything? What are your thoughts about uh, the threat to the Marshall Islands? Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, the Marshall Islands, the uh, Maldives, these are all uh, atoll communities and, and countries that are living really at in islands that are just above sea level. These are not mountainous regions where people can potentially move northward. There is no north. Uh, we're just a few feet above sea level, and they're extremely, extremely vulnerable. If you add to that their geographic separation, that adds to their vulnerability. And uh, we are absolutely dependent upon regular shipment of goods and services, uh, both from air as well as by, land, by sea. And anything that would compromise that regular influx of food, uh, materials, and, and mail, uh, for quite frankly, just from a morale perspective, really would have devastating effects. This is like every, almost, almost every island community, uh, a relatively impoverished country. And there are limits of how many resources those individuals have. And like many people who live in impoverished areas, they are that much more susceptible to disease. And the influx of Western diets into cultures and civilizations that did not sort of genetically grow up to eat this kind of food have a higher incidence of diabetes and heart disease. So when you add that to sometimes a nutritional balance that is not optimal, uh, living environments that are close quarters, uh, both because of cultural connectedness and the desire to be close, but also due to poverty, you have the opportunities for contagious diseases, uh, COVID being amongst them, uh, but tuberculosis is, is on the islands uh, as well, to really have a disproportionate impact. And uh, those are really big, big challenges that are going to get even more profound uh, with climate changes causing sea level rise and uh, potentially impacts of marine diversity, the opportunity to catch fish. Um, we have commercial vessels that are really just off the horizon, um, culling the, the oceans as much as possible. So that has an impact on food sources as well. Yeah, it's uh, the, the president had talked about, uh, same as you, uh, supply chain disruption. Um, I, I believe he said there, there were no cases of COVID there currently. That's correct. Due to the isolation, which is certainly a good thing. Hopefully it will stay that way. 
that's a, a small uh, small win, at least at this point in time, knock on wood. Nick, uh, it's really been fascinating and fun to visit with you. Um, are, are there any other thoughts or comments that you wanted to make? I suppose just a, a broad philosophical comment. We've kind of tiptoed through uh, an interesting career, and I guess it's always interesting to look at your own career when someone else is reviewing it. Uh, but I, I hope that if people have a passion for what they're doing, they're able to occasionally take the road less traveled when an opportunity presents, because those are where uh, amazing magic can happen in your life. It doesn't come free. You, you have to be willing to risk and sometimes have and suffer hardships. But I, perhaps, you know, watching the Cousteau films uh, as a kid kind of instilled in me an idea that despite the fact that you guys may have been out in hot climates and, and miserable or on a boat or eating the same food for weeks on end uh, until you can get resupplied, there was also a pleasure and a magic in that camaraderie that you really can't articulate if you haven't experienced it, as well as seeing the world through a lens of what is going on and you know it from your own experience as opposed to being told about it on the news. And, and those are, that's a genuine experience of life, which I, I have valued greatly. And I encourage people in whatever way that you can in your life to experience your life through that sort of approach. Wow, that's uh, that echoes a lot of what we talk about at Future Frogmen, and uh, try to inspire people of all ages. Uh, we deal a lot with uh, college and university and high school age uh, students, but uh, we try to inspire all ages. And when I get a chance to speak to audiences, I do the same. Uh, just say yes. Uh, you may never have that opportunity again, and uh, it. Like you said, it, it can be uncomfortable, uh, it can be frightening, um, but uh, use common sense. But uh, I, I love that. That's a great message. And I've really enjoyed your thoughtful uh, conversation and uh, your analogy, if you will, to the lenses, looking through the lens and the lenses uh, I think that's a really great message, and uh, it's obviously taken you far <laughs> geographically, physically, uh, to the Marshall Islands, but uh, also taken you on a very interesting career, and you, you've done, I'm sure, an awful lot of great good for uh, people medically. So uh, I thank you for that, and I, I thank you for spending time with us today. Well, Richard, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure, and thank you for the work that you do um, and for kindly reaching out and, and giving me a chance to, to talk with you. What a, what a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. We hope you liked this Blue Earth podcast. If you want to see more of our content, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at Future Frogmen or on our website at futurefrogmen.org. But until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you.